Catholic Connection. We are going to be taking a look at an interview that we did with Joe Heishmeyer and his book, All About the Eucharist. So if you think about it, today being the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows and the fact that we're going to be talking about the Eucharist, yes, it really is Jesus. What does our Blessed Mother always do? She's always pointing to her son and talking about Mass and talking about the Rosary and when she's talking about her son, she's telling us to go to Mass and to receive him body, blood, soul, and divinity. So a very good tie-in, I think, today with the feast day for this book, The Eucharist is Really Jesus. And then for our uh, Fact Check Friday, I think you're really going to enjoy it. A very interesting story I came across the other day about what they call third places. So the first place is home, second place is work, third place is a place where you would meet your friends. Remember the sitcom Cheers in the 80s and they all met you know, at the bar Cheers or if you think of the show Friends, which I know a lot of the content was uh, very uh, questionable and not exactly wholesome, but the one thing that they always did was they came together as friends at the coffee shop right in New York Central Perk. And unfortunately, what's happened because of increased media usage, which is why we're bringing this up in Fact Check Friday, is that unfortunately, a lot of those places where we used to hang together, where we used to relate, and even they mention in this article, and I'll be sharing that with you, a lot of people don't even meet at church anymore. They used to go to Bible studies or socials or, you know, the donuts, coffee and donuts after mass. So that has changed quite a bit. And now to the point where developers realize how we are, even if they're not looking at this from a religious perspective, that we are created to relate and they're developing communities that have these built-in so-called third places in them. And I think that speaks to the truth of who we are, of course, created in the image and likeness of God. And we'll talk about that for our Fact Check Friday. Doug Keck is off today because we have a special edition of Catholic Connection. And I do hope you can stay tuned for the entire program. Right now, though, on a Friday, let's check the news and see what's happening. The leader of the Catholic Church in Morocco saying this week that material support and prayers will be needed for months or maybe even years after the nation of 37 million was rocked by its worst earthquake last week in decades. In a September 11th interview with Caritas International of Caritas Morocco, church leaders telling the Catholic News Agency the situation in the country varies from day to day, not to say even hour to hour. The 6.8 magnitude earthquake, which hit near the historic city of Marrakesh on Friday night, September 8th, has killed more than 2,900 people as of September 13th. It is the deadliest earthquake, as the New York Times reports, to hit the North African nation since at least 1960. As of September 11th, one of the biggest physical needs of the people of Morocco is for electricity, as well as clothes, medicine, and food. Difficulties in distributing aid faced by Caritas Morocco, the local branch of the worldwide Catholic charity, include the nation's thinly dispersed population, as well as widespread destroyed and damaged infrastructure. And Maui police are now identifying two more of the 115 people confirmed dead in the Lahaina wildfire. Both residents, a 14-year-old boy and a 79-year-old man, identified on Wednesday. The boy was a day away from starting his junior year at the local high school. The majority of the victims were ages 65 or older. The wife of a Texas Border Patrol agent is giving Congress a glimpse of the impact that a surge of illegal immigration is having on the men and women who wear the uniform. 
the burden of not being able to help or fix the problems at work becomes so overwhelming it consumes an agent's mind to the point where he lashes out in anger. Myra Cantu was part of a Capitol Hill hearing on the consequences of the border crisis. She says a surge of illegal immigration is taking a toll on agents' mental health to the point where some turn to alcohol at home. Suicides, she says, are also up. Apprehensions increased up to a reported 177,000 in August at the southern border. And some residents in Chicago are now pushing back on city plans to build outdoor base camps for migrants on the far south side. A community meeting held last night to discuss the mayor's proposal to provide tents for migrants is causing some issues. Many residents raised concerns, including whether the asylum seekers were vaccinated and how the tent city would be kept clean. This breaking overnight, the United Auto Workers Union and the big three automakers have failed to reach a deal on a new contract. Thursday's deadline passed, prompting targeted strikes against Ford, GM, and Stellantis. The UAW, made up of more than 140,000 members, is seeking pay increases, a four-day work week, and the return to pension and retiree benefits. Reporter Kelly Cobiella tells us more than 200 passengers aboard a cruise ship that ran aground in Greenland are going to be stuck there, probably at least for most of the day today. Overnight, the cruise company Aurora Expeditions confirming three of the passengers have COVID-19, are in isolation, and are doing well. The ship, on a luxury cruise to the Arctic, ran aground Monday during low tide. The Ocean Explorer ran aground in a remote part of Greenland on Monday afternoon. The crew hasn't had any luck freeing the ship from a bed of sediment, silt, and sand. The Danish military's Arctic Command said on Wednesday that no oil is spilling from the vessel and there have not been any injuries, but that rescue ships won't reach the Ocean Explorer until, again, sometime today. And Mexico has overtaken China as America's biggest trading partner. Aaron Rial has that story. As the U.S. looks to import goods closer to home, minimizing its reliance on geopolitical rivals like China, Mexico has emerged as the U.S.'s biggest trading partner, with roughly $400 billion in imports from Mexico this year. Meanwhile, foreign direct investment in Mexico is up more than 40 percent as U.S. companies are increasingly setting up shop there. At the same time, a survey by Spanish bank BBVA found that one in five new arrivals in Mexico are Chinese businesses probably seeking to skirt U.S. tariffs. Wholesale inflation was up more than experts predicted in August. The producer price index, which measures how much producers get for goods and services, was up seven-tenths of a percent last month and 1.6 percent year over year. The jump was led by mostly transportation and warehousing costs. Wall Street experts said they were expecting an increase of 0.4 percent for the month. Excluding food and energy costs, however, the monthly increase was only two-tenths of a percent. A federal judge is ruling the DACA program unlawful for a second time. Judge Andrew Hannon of the South District of Texas maintained that a ruling turning the policy into a federal regulation violated the Administrative Procedure Act, which governs how agencies make regulations. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program enacted during the Obama administration. A group of Russian ransomware hackers claiming responsibility for the cybersecurity breach that took down systems at several Las Vegas properties owned by MGM Resorts International. A social media post saying the hacker gangs managed to do it with a phone call last weekend, though at the time the ransomware and infrastructure were already in place. The breach affected slot machines, hotel room keys, and more for four days. MGM Nevada's largest employer has not confirmed the cause of the issue or called it a cyber attack as of yet. And a new study suggesting tobacco and marijuana use, as Sarah Lee Kessler tells us, is tied to much higher risks of depression and anxiety. 
Researchers at the University of California, San Francisco, studied nearly 54,000 U.S. adults and found that those who use both substances experience depression or anxiety at almost twice the rate of people who don't use tobacco or marijuana. The lead researcher said smoking weed and tobacco doesn't help in dealing with anxiety and depression, and it might actually make mental health issues worse in the long run. And finally, in our news segment on a Friday morning, researchers are still marveling over the discovery of an unidentified organism found off the Gulf of Alaska. Scientists found the golden orb-like organism late last month during an expedition by Seascape Alaska. It is dome-shaped and smooth and golden color. They don't know what it is, but they're working hard in the lab to find out. More Catholic Connection coming up on a Friday. Thanks for listening to EWTN, and we'll be right back. She was a mystic and reformer who died at the age of 33. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Catherine of Siena accomplished something no one thought possible. She convinced Pope Gregory XI to return to Rome after the popes had lived in France for almost the whole of the 14th century. They've been there ever since. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. From the archives, this this is the wisdom of Mother Angelica. God created each one of us, but he had in mind, regardless of how we look from childhood to old age, we change physically, but we don't change in his mind. Why? Because God has a specific degree of union with him, holiness we call it, for every one of you. And it's all different. See, we're all different. And we are called to be different because it glorifies God. He just doesn't make robots. Now, why you say, well, why are some holier than others? Well, that's your fault. <laughs> that's not his fault. If we accept the good, the bad, and indifferent of every day, every day, we'll all be holy in a different way. For more about Mother Angelica, visit EWTNRC.com. Hello, my name is Francesca. Hello, my name is Liliana. And we're missing to Aunt Teresa. Welcome back, Catholic Connection. Of course, we're moving toward the beautiful Eucharistic Congress coming up next year. And bishops are have a beautiful, beautiful event planned, and we'll be covering that as well here on EW10. And one of the programs that really deals with the, the meeting, not only behind the Eucharist as source and summit of our faith, but beautiful apologetics every single day, of course, here on the EW10 Global Catholic Radio Network, Friends at Catholic Answers. And there's a new book out, The Eucharist Is Really Jesus? And staff apologist Joe Heschmeyer is on the phone with us. Joe, thanks for joining us so much. I wanted to give you, I know we're a few minutes early, but I wanted to give you a little bit more time on this because it's so important when we see so many surveys that come out and show a declining interest, we had the survey that came out last week from Gallup saying fewer people believe in heaven, hell, God, angels, the devil. And of course, we know the statistics on Catholics who believe and don't believe in the real presence. So obviously, this book is geared toward really building on hopefully a renewed interest in the Eucharist, correct? And good morning. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it is. So give us a little bit of detail. What, what is in this book in terms of what's different from other books that are out there on, on the Eucharist? Yeah, so there are a certain number of really good books that explain what do Catholics believe about the Eucharist and why. But I wanted to go beyond that. And I, so I want to do that, of course. 
But I also want to say, how does getting the Eucharist right help us to get everything else right that we mm. believe? So, you know, for instance, uh, you'll hear talk about, like, the covenant, or, or, you know, we refer to the books of the New Testament as the New Testament. And people might be like, well, what is the Testament? What is the covenant? And what does it all have to do with the Eucharist? Or, to, to take another example, you've got a lot of like bloody sacrifices of animals in the Old Testament, and the cross is really bloody. What's going on with all of that? How do we, you know, the, you can look at those pieces by themselves and just say, I don't get it. This doesn't make a lot of sense. But one of the things I argue in the book is that if you get the Eucharist right, these pieces, you can start to put them together, and they start to make a lot more sense. And these things that seem maybe unrelated actually fit together nicely and make sense of one another. Do you think this is true? I think it's true. This is my personal experience that it's across the board with other core teachings of the church. When you get the Eucharist, things fall into place. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is actually what the church teaches. So in the Second Vatican Council, the Eucharistic sacrifice is referred to as the source and summit of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. In calling it the summit, we're calling it the highest point. This is this is the most important thing to get right in a real way. That this is the high point of my life as a Christian. But in calling it the source, I'm saying everything else flows from it. So this is really the the big one to get right. And if you get this right, then you'll get the other stuff right, too. And if you don't get this right, then you're going to have a deficient understanding of that other stuff as well. How did you come to truly appreciate the Eucharist as Source and Summit? What happened in your life, and, and what prompted, I'm sure, some of that is why you wrote the book? Yeah, I mean, I, I have... I've had a devotion to Christ in the Eucharist uh, for, you know, years and years. And it was something that, you know, my parents did a great job of instilling a, a belief in the real presence in us. But a lot of times, you know, I, I, it was like a, a doctrine that was out here, and there were some other doctrines I believed in, but I didn't necessarily see what was connecting them. And uh, <laughs> I used to be in seminary, and while I was there, I was stationed at the cathedral in Tallinn, Estonia, which is a tiny country right next to Russia. And uh, I was invited to give a series of talks uh, to the Missionaries of Charity. And so I was told on Monday I was going to be giving three one-hour-long talks uh, beginning literally the next day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I found out Monday evening, okay, you're going to be talking about the Eucharist tomorrow for an hour, to the missionaries of charity who know all of the bases. You, you, know, you, you don't have to go in there and say, hey, let me tell you about the real presence. Right, because yeah. they do a, an hour of adoration every day. They don't need me to do that. So I, I went and right before the Blessed Sacrament and thought, what could I possibly say to these women that they wouldn't already be able to just give me a master's course then themselves? And what I came away with was this scene in the Book of Revelation that there's a scroll with seven seals, and no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth can open it. And, and then John, he, he begins to weep, and he's told, don't weep, because the Lion of Judah will open it. But in the next verse, we don't see a lion, we see Jesus as the Lamb. And we're told that he's the Lamb standing as though slain. And it's this great paradox. He's both the Lion and the Lamb, but it's also that he's slain but still standing. And it's, it's this deeply Eucharistic image that Christ, while slain, triumphs, but also that Christ is our Paschal Lamb who's been sacrificed. Well, Paschal means Passover, so 1 Corinthians 15 makes this connection. Right. That in calling Christ the Lamb of God, we should be thinking back to the Passover. So in other words, once you see Jesus in this Eucharistic way, that sort of unlocks everything else. The, 
the other scrolls are opened. And, and so you see images like this. The other one I'd point to is in uh, Luke, uh, that after the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is explaining yeah. to the two travelers on the road all of the things concerning him. But they, even as he's explaining how all of these things fit together, they still don't get it. Don't they recognize still don't him. realize yeah. that it's mm-hmm. Jesus. Right. When do they recognize him? They recognize him in the breaking of the bread. That's how Luke puts it, that when they go to table and Jesus takes and blesses and breaks the bread, that's when they realize, oh, it's Jesus, and then he disappears from their Right, side. right. And yeah. only then do they realize we're not our hearts burning within us, that now all of those pieces that Jesus had been laying up for them, this is the light bulb moment, in, in this kind of Eucharistic moment, that now they get what's going on and, and they can see it. Yeah, and, and he leaves them in that bodily form, but then there he is in the Eucharist. Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's some debate about whether this is literally the Eucharist, but it's definitely very Eucharistic language. The, the four verbs that he uses there in Luke 24, that he takes, blesses, and breaks, and gives, these are the same four, verses, same four verbs that are used in the Eucharistic institution. And, and this is a very ritual-sounding thing. You know, Luke is not worried that we don't know how to eat bread. You know, he doesn't give us four verbs to describe the breaking of bread, because he's like, well, I want to make sure they know that they weren't eating an entire loaf. No, they, mm-hmm. he, we know that. So it's, it's this incredibly Eucharistic kind of formula, and only in the light of that, only like as, as we see Jesus there, now they have the pieces to realize how all the Old Testament fits in with the New Testament, which is what Jesus had been explaining to them on the road. Yeah, powerful. We're talking with Joe Heschmeyer from Catholic Answers, and the book is Eucharist is Really Jesus. In terms of for those who struggle with with a belief, it, and when you when you sit in front of the Blessed Sacrament and you're looking at the monstrance and you're thinking about, okay, that's God. That is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That is the Great I Am. I mean, that's it's it is overwhelming to think of that. And so I wonder if that is some of the struggle because it's like, how can that be the God of the universe? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And I, you know, one of the things I go back to here is. The, the adoration of the Magi, that they come and they, they go down and they worship a baby. And they had just had the same kind of like, well, this is weird, kind of, you know, yeah. like, logically, I can, I can know all signs point to this being the Messiah and the God of the universe, but it's just a level of, of feeling. <laughs> you just got to say, mm-hmm. okay, well, there's, there's more than meets the eye here. And, and the Church Fathers actually talk about this, too. St. Ambrose has uh, a really good passage on this, where he says, basically, like, look, if you believe in the virgin birth, and why would you expect him to behave according to the general rules of matter? Like, it doesn't make any sense to say, right. yeah, Christ can be born of a virgin against all the ordinary laws of nature, but he can't come to us in the Eucharistic way, because that would be against the ordinary laws of nature. It's like, well, he's already shown himself to be superior to those. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. like, why? <laughs> his body from the beginning broke those rules or you know was above those rules so so it makes sense that his body coming to us now isn't going to be bound by those rules in the same way that you or i would be why do you think and we know the survey so many catholics don't believe in the real presence and still see it as a symbol i think there's a couple reasons there's a really strong correlation between belief in the real presence and mass attendance so you know the famous study a few years ago which found that like two-thirds of catholics don't believe in the real presence well, when you break that down to weekly mass goers, it was more like a 90-10 belief. And so mm. that still could be better, but it, it, one of the things we, we need to keep in mind there is a lot of the people who are being counted as Catholic 
haven't darkened the doorstep of a Catholic church in, in years. And so a lot of the things we're trying to do to respond, like, oh, we need better preaching on the Eucharist, etc., well, that's not going to reach those people because they're literally not there. But it is a two-way street. If we don't have good Eucharistic theology, and if we don't have the other thing I'd bring in here, if we don't have a good liturgy that points to the beauty and reverence and transcendence about what we believe, then people aren't going to believe in the Eucharist, and they're going to stop going. So right. some people don't believe in the Eucharist because they don't go to church, some people don't go to church because they don't believe in the Eucharist. So these two things are intimately connected. And because, if, you know, if you don't have the belief in the real presence, and you don't see a difference between what we're doing at Mass and what the non-denominational church down the street is doing, then you're going to start looking to the other things, like, well, who's got better preaching? Who's got better music? And <laughs> nine times out of mm-hmm. ten, I don't think the Catholic Church is going to win those fights. Right. Because that's not right. what our liturgy is built on. It's built on the Eucharist. The book is Eucharist is Really Jesus, How Christ's Body and Blood Are Key to Everything We Believe. And actually, it's brand new. Hot Off the Presses uh, just came out late last month. It's about uh, a month out there. And get a copy of it. We're talking with staff apologist Joe Heschmeyer, uh, who's the author of this beautiful book. I also think if you if you read Scripture, it's it's kind of like I was thinking about this in relationship to learning a language, that ev- even if you learn that language when you're younger, which is a good age to learn a language, they say, if you don't practice it, if you're not immersed in that or the culture or using it over and over again, just like anything else, you're going to lose it. So if we don't learn more about our faith, if we're not, okay, if we're going to Mass every week and meeting our obligation, praise God, but that's just the minimum amount of things we should be doing, right? If we're not living the faith you know, between like Monday through Friday before we get to Mass on the weekend, if we're not reading Scripture, if we're not praying, if we're not going to adoration, then you're not going to, to feel that fullness of the faith. Would you agree with oh, that? Oh, yeah. I mean, if someone told you they were having problems in their marriage, and you said, how often do you spend time together? And they said, oh, I see her about an hour a week. Mm-hmm. Said, I, think, I think I found the problem. You're not right. spending nearly enough time together. Is this book basically for personal reading, Joe, or is it something you could do in a study? What do you think? It's built for both, and we actually, if you go to shop.catholic.com, you can get, you know, uh, I think it's 20 books for $70, which is like $3.50 a book. Like we've, we've tried to make it as easy as possible to make it so you can either read it by yourself or you can read it in a group. Every chapter is really topically broken out, and mm-hmm. so that would be like the, the you know, easy chunks to do with one another. You wouldn't have to say, yeah. well, how, where should we break it up? Like, the, the chapters are divided up topically, so... The, you know, if you were to do it as a Bible study or a small group or whatever else. That's great. So a great it's, resource. It's going to be good for both, both uses. We'll be right back. More with Joe and his book, The Eucharist Is Really Jesus. And we come back 25 minutes past the hour. Father Benedict Groeschel. I want to welcome you, if you're not familiar with the wonderful world of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What will America become if it makes it impossible for the Holy Spirit to work here because of untruth and self-indulgence and paganism? This is not just a nice discussion of the gifts of the Holy Spirit because I'm going to discuss what happens when people make it impossible to be prudent, just, or honest, or brave, or courageous, or reverent. When people make that impossible, what a terrible thing they do not only to themselves, but to our society. 
EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. The Eucharist is really Jesus. Amen to that. How Christ's body and blood are the key to everything we believe. Everything. And it makes a lot of sense if you think and pray about this. And the author of that book is our guest this morning. So grateful to have two segments with Joe Heschmeyer. He's a staff apologist with Catholic Answers. And, of course, great program. Heard live daily here on EWTN Radio. Okay, gosh, so many things I, I want to discuss with you. I do really like the fact that you say in this subtitle, how Christ's body and blood are the key to everything we believe. Because once you get that, because it's everything, it's a source and summit of the faith, it flows naturally. If you believe in the Eucharist, if you believe it is body, blood, soul, divinity, then you should not have any problem with what Jesus is teaching us elsewhere in the church. And I really think it's interesting to bring that up with people because they want to go to communion, they want to receive Jesus, but they also want to believe in certain things such as birth control or abortion, or they want to believe in so-called same-sex marriage, but they still want to receive the Eucharist. Those two do not jive. Can you explain that a little bit? Because are they really accepting who Jesus says he is? Because if you're accepting the Eucharist, you're saying, yes, I believe that's Jesus, but I don't believe the other stuff. I want to go down the line, you know, the cafeteria line of Catholicism, and pick what I want and don't want. Yeah, this is, I think, a really important thing to bear in mind. I mean, imagine somebody at the time of Jesus, maybe listening to the Sermon on the Mount, and they're saying, oh, yeah, that part's really exciting. That part makes a lot of sense. Maybe this challenges me a little bit. And then he says something else, and they say, ah, you know what? I don't want to be a peacemaker. I want to forgive my enemies. I'll accept 80% of what he's got here. I'm going to reject it at 20%. You'd look at that person and say, you're not really following Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like, you're taking him the way you would take any other thinker in the world. Or, you know, you might have a favorite op-ed columnist or a public intellectual or a university professor so you just say, like, oh, yeah, I like a lot of what they have to say, but every now and then we part company. And that's appropriate to do with someone who's on your level as another human teacher. That's totally inappropriate to do with the God of the universe. And to say, God, I think you're getting this about 80% right, you know, I'll explain the other 20% to you later. Uh, that, <laughs> that attitude completely misunderstands who we are and who God is. And if that's true of our relationship with Jesus, that we shouldn't be picking and choosing which parts we're going to either trust Jesus or don't trust Jesus, but don't pretend that he's just a human teacher. You can pick and choose, you know, which parts you want to accept and which parts you don't, because he's very clearly more than that and and very clearly won't let you accept 80% of his teaching. So if that's true of him, Christ the head, then we should also take that seriously of, of his body, the Church, because he tells us that he's the one who gives us the Church. So there, right. there is this intimate relationship between receiving Jesus in the body of Christ in the Eucharist and receiving Jesus in the body of Christ the Church. These two are, are really closely connected. St. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says that we are one body because we partake of the one loaf. Now, that doesn't literally mean a loaf of bread. It isn't like there's a loaf of bread that Paul and the Christians in Corinth and all the Christians in the world are... You know, they just pass this one loaf of bread around. No, clearly not. The one loaf is Jesus in the Eucharist. And we all partake of the Eucharist, and that makes us one body. So the body of Christ, the Church, is formed by the body of Christ, the Eucharist. And so when you're saying yes to Jesus in the Eucharist, you're not just saying yes to Jesus the head, you're also saying yes to the body of Christ, the Church. And if you actually are only 80% on board saying, I think the Church is wrong, I don't agree with the Church, you can't make that yes in good faith. 
Right. Uh, you know, in the same way, if you're 80% sure you want to marry somebody, you can't stand at the altar and say, I do, I'm, I'm going to do this. Because make up your mind. Like, you're either in or you're out. Uh, and, and so that's what I would say to people who, who want to receive the Eucharist while not agreeing with the Catholic Church. And you know, bear in mind, this is not just me. This is not just a modern Catholic thing, anything like this. St. Paul, I just mentioned 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11. 11, 11, 27. Yep. Mm-hmm. Both, yep. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. He, he warns about damning ourselves by receiving without discerning the body. Now, that means both in the Unworthily, right. the real mm-hmm. presence of Christ, yep. but we should also discern the body, the Church, as we're receiving the Eucharist. It, the Eucharist creates our communion with the Church in its deepest way. And that's why it's the highest of what are called the sacraments of initiation, that baptism and confirmation point towards the reality of communion in the Eucharist. This is why we call it communion. It's communion with God. It's also communion with one another. Mm-hmm. So if we're not ready for this, that's not what we're wanting to have, then don't do the action in this bodily way that says we want communion. In the same way that, you know, if a couple is saying, I'm 80% on board, you don't bodily commune with each other. Like, be 100% on board, get right. everything right, and then you can experience this kind of communion. And so I'd say, you know, this Justin Martyr, uh, in the year 160, in a letter called The First Apology, this is an apology like defense. He talks about this. He, he says there's three things. You need to be baptized with the washing of regeneration. You have to believe what we teach. And you have to live according to it. And that's the same standards we look for today. You have to be baptized. You have to be in the Catholic Church. And you have to be living in what we'd say in a state of grace. You're not living in a way contrary to the faith. And I also think it's important if we're saying yes to the Eucharist, as you just said, and that's huge. If you're saying no to other parts of core teachings of the Church, you are doing the uh, the bad thing that, that St. Paul talks about in 1120, Corinthians 1127, is you're receiving the body and blood of Jesus unworthily. And so you're condemning yourself by going up there and saying, you know, I'm half in, I'm not all in, you know, I've got one foot in and one foot out. The other thing, too, that I think is, is super important is if we have problems with the various teachings of the Church, okay, how much time have we spent going before the Blessed Sacrament and saying, Jesus, I don't get this. Help me understand. I, you know, I, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. And that's okay to have the questions, but to outright reject the teaching on abortion or birth control or marriage and then still say, I want to receive the Eucharist, you, you can't do that, period, but you also have to have this process while you're learning more about it and understanding why the Church teaches what she teaches and read the documents, read the encyclicals, read the catechism. It's so helpful. Yeah, you know, I think that's a really good distinction that you just made. That it's okay to have questions and it's okay to have confusions. And there's something even very humble about that right. where you just say, you know, you're God and I'm not, and there's a lot of this stuff that I don't get. And that's appropriate. When you say, because I don't get it, therefore God is wrong, mm-hmm. that's, that's where it becomes inappropriate. That's the difference between a question and a doubt. Right. You know, right. are you saying God is not good because he doesn't agree with your human reason, or are you saying my human reason is inadequate? I can see a little bit, but there's a lot more that I, I don't really understand. And then you, you pray about trying to grow in that clarity and understanding, but you can still trust him even when you're confused. You can say, you know, if I were God, I think I would believe X, Y, and Z instead, but I'm not. And so right. I'll, I'll believe the things God says. 
No, because on the one hand, you're saying you totally accept what the church teaches about Jesus in the Eucharist, but then the other stuff, well, they made a mistake. I, I know better, which goes back, of course, to, to pride, which is you know the, the, our sin in terms of we think we know better than God, and we're seeing this all over the place. Boy, Joe, we need like three more segments. This is a great discussion. Thank you so much. There's so many other questions I wanted to ask you, but hopefully we can have you back. The book is Eucharist is Really Jesus, How Christ's Body and Blood Are the Key to everything we believe. Now, this is so timely, and this would be great, right, to get in preparation for the big celebration, the Eucharistic Congress next year, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the things, you know, we're, like, we're releasing it right now on, on purpose. There's a little under a year left in, in this Eucharistic kind of preparation for the Congress, and that we really want this growing appreciation, a growing amazement uh, of the Eucharist. And, and I'm hoping this book will help people as a I'm sure it will. You can find it on the Religious Catalog. Also, of course, on the Catholic Answers website, catholic.com. Check it out. And also, take a look at the story on the register that was just published this week and on the bishop in Honduras confirming another Eucharistic miracle there. Incredible story. Incredible. And it's been confirmed now by the Church as National Catholic Register reports in that area of Honduras. We'll be right back. Great Friday. It is Friday, September 15, 2023. Time for Fact Check Friday. So I came across this um, very curious article, and the headline really got my attention, being that we're talking about media, and we talk about media a lot here on EWTN and Catholic Connection and all of our programs in terms of media influence and whatnot, which is my area of interest and expertise. Friends and Seinfeld knew the cure for loneliness, and this is from Insider Magazine. Now, Obviously, there were some problems with those shows in terms of the different type of content that they promoted. However, if we look at where a lot of the activity on those shows took place, this is what this article is discussing, and it ties directly into what we've been talking about a lot the last few months since the Surgeon General came out with his report, well, two reports, on the epidemic of loneliness and then also warnings about social media, especially for young people. So this article has an image of Friends, the show Friends, a very popular NBC sitcom that is still in rerun heaven and and even more popular, I think, than it was when it was actually airing uh, many years ago. And they have a scene from Central Perk, the coffee shop where they all used to meet. And of course, if you think about Seinfeld, you think about the diner where they used to go and some of the other locations. They say that having a place to hang out and connect is something that these shows got right and something, if you look, for example, what was the show? Cheers, right? They all met at that pub and Ted Danson was the, the, uh, the bar owner and then all the characters and you remember that, that show, I'm sure, a very popular sitcom in the uh, 80s and 90s. So well, their point is, is that we used to have these places that we would go to the neighborhood restaurant, the neighborhood diner, or maybe people would go more often to their, their parish for a Bible study or whatever they would do, or meet after mass and go to a coffee shop, which I think is starting to happen again, but slowly. I know that's been, that was happening a lot at our parish. It was a thing where the, those who went to the 7 a.m. mass would always go for breakfast together afterwards. So it was a real nice way to connect with each other, and we are made to relate first with God and then with each other. But this is, I think, a really important story. And in the secular publication, Insider, and it talks about this young woman in her 20s. She made close friends in her central Pennsylvania hometown through an organization called Third Place. 
The group was named after what sociologists call any social setting that's not home, the first place, or work, the second, was led maybe by a local church leader and sought to help young professionals build community. In her 30s, she joined the Peace Corps and worked in several locations around the world. And by the time she came home six years later, most of her third-place friends had started families and the sense of community had faded. So she heard about this cul-de-sac, a new $170 million car-free community opening up outside of Phoenix. She applied to live there, even though she'd never been to Arizona, and she became one of the first residents to move in. So she's lived there now for several years in a small apartment and was prepared to feel what millions of Americans, the article says, feel today lonely. I've been through that before living in other places and knowing what I need to do is put myself out there, introduce myself to neighbors, she said. And the design of this new complex has made that a lot easier. The development is centered on shared spaces for its 1,000 residents, including a plaza, a gym, a grocery store, a restaurant, a coffee shop, co-working space, and shaded courtyards. There's weekly bike karaoke along with art fairs and all sorts of other programming to get neighbors to meet up. The founders inspired by, listen to this, multi-generational Egyptian farming villages. Aaron Boyd, the head of government and external affairs, says that walkable, tightly knit communities might be new to the suburbs in Arizona, but they're actually a very old way of living. The article goes on to say cul-de-sac is in short an experiment to save one of the most endangered aspects of American life, a place to hang out. Now, so much has happened, especially, you know, during COVID and post-COVID. And unfortunately, even after COVID, now that things are open again, thanks be to God, the article says we are going to third places less often. We have longer working hours to compensate for wage stagnation, and we're spending less time with one another. For Americans, for example, for decades, we'd spend usually about six and a half hours a week with friends. But from 2014 to 2019, it suddenly dropped by 37% to four hours a week. Now, here's something important. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up on Fact Check Friday today. First of all, because of the, the influence of the TV shows that they mentioned, and they were reflecting what was going on in the communities at the time, that people did have their coffee shops and their diners that they would meet as friends, whether this something first started at church and then moved to another location. But you know what I'm saying, those kinds of, of places to meet and to maintain and, and develop and to strengthen relationships and friendships, that was a common thing. So from 2014 to 2019, it suddenly drops by 37% to four hours a week. And this date of 2014, the article says, not coincidentally was the year smartphone ownership in the U.S. passed 50%. So instead, we spend much more time online alone. Instagram and podcasts are the new places, third places. We can see this shift, the article says, everywhere. The characters of the biggest shows of the 90s, Friends, Seinfeld, Cheers, spent the overwhelming majority of their time hanging out at the cafe, the diner, and the bar. And work was either an afterthought or a running joke. In today's biggest shows, work is all-consuming. And life beyond it is an afterthought or inaccessible. 
And they mention in this article as well, brothers and sisters, guess what? Yes, they do mention the Surgeon General's epidemic of loneliness. One in five Americans reported feeling lonely or socially isolated often or all the time in 2018. One study found the rate of loneliness among young adults rose almost every year between 1976 and 2019. In a 2019 YouGov poll, 22% of millennials reported having no friends at all. And being lonely and spending a lot of time alone are associated with bleak health outcomes, including significantly raising the risk of premature death. And this is some of the, I mean, these facts here. I I keep going back to this report because it really is eye-opening. Being lonely, spending all your time alone, whether by choice or by a situation that you find yourself in, raises the risk of premature death, especially from a stroke or coronary artery disease. This is how serious it is. But again, I keep going back to this statistic. This is not a coincidence. The number of, the number of hours we spent together with friends, four hours a week, it dropped to in 2019. From 2014 to 2019, suddenly dropping by 37% again down to four hours a week. And again, not coincidentally, that was the year smartphone ownership in the US passed 50%. This is another article showing how people are longing to get back to community. This is what our faith life is about, being in community with one another, accompanying one another, helping people get to a closer relationship with job, to, with God, to embrace the church, to embrace her teachings, to come to Mass, but not just to go home after that, to do more activities at the parish level. We get so caught up, I think, in our busyness that we find ourselves spending way too much time alone. And 2014, when the numbers started to drop, 2014, not coincidentally, was the year smartphone ownership in the U.S. passed 50%. Coinkydink? As this article says, I think not. So as we enter into another weekend, and we are uh, almost into the fall season, just a few days on the calendar, this is a great time to be with other people outside. Maybe to invite someone to Mass. Maybe to yourself get a little bit more involved in the parish. Get out of your comfort zone. Put down the phone, back away from the computer, and do a better job of relating. Or as my friend Kelly Walquist would say in her book, we are created to relate. So create ways for you to relate. Isn't it amazing, and not in a good way, that there are these builders and architects. I mean, I think it's good that they're doing this, but it's sad that We have to go about building now. I mean, physically, literally building communities so we can encourage people to spend more time together. We are created to relate first with God and then with each other. And you know what? A lot of times we should just be, even though there's great resources on the phone, there's all kinds of apps. There's an app for EWTN. There's an app for Ave Maria Radio, all kinds of prayer apps. That's fine. But how much time are we spending on that phone alone instead of sharing our faith life with other people? Something to think and pray about. Talking about why is it that the African continent is doing so much better in terms of the church, right, where the priesthood is exploding, thanks be to God, and also 
Christianity is spreading. The rapid spread of Christianity in Africa, and this is again Catholic News Agency, the story is on their homepage at catholicnewsagency.com, is due to its people's inherent structures of community life, as well as the bonding together of community members, according to Bishop John Patrick Dolan of Phoenix. He just returned from a 12-day trip to the African countries of Ethiopia, Uganda, and Kenya last week. Speaking with CNA's African News Service, weighing in on the ease of the spread of Christianity among Africans, noting that the faith, and listen to this, naturally happens where there are existing structures of communion. Faith, he says, begins where there are strong families and communities bonding together, and they are not living behind their phones. In such a setting, faith naturally happens and grows. I think in the United States we have lost a lot of that. The bishop who serves on the subcommittee for the Solidarity Fund for the Church in Africa, an initiative of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, said that in the U.S. people have become very individualistic. In some ways, we've lost our faith. The numbers show it. It gives me hope when I see Africa and parts of Central America or Latin America and South Korea where people are naturally gathered, responding to faith together as a community. It gives me a challenge to go back to the U.S., he says, and build that community first of all, because I don't know if faith can be built one person at a time. It has to be built in a communal sense. Now, a consultant for the Solidarity Fund for the Church in Africa, Fritz Zuger, who accompanied Dolan for the tour of projects the USCCB is supporting through partnerships with various conferences, attributed the rapid spread of Christianity in Africa to a natural religious belief among the people of God on the continent. They have this just sense of God. He says they knew communion even before Christianity came and they have maintained this relationship. He said the African people are very close to nature where they also get their livelihood. Christianity is spreading very fast in Africa. They already have structures and they make them open to God. He said that the church in Africa is not young in terms of when Christianity came. Here in Africa, the church is young because the people are young, he explained. The average age in the three countries we visited is extremely low. It's like 25. Their church is full of young people. And it's the best resource a church could have. But I think there's some very, very important points that are made in this article by those who visited Africa for this trip recently. They're talking about, first of all, structures of community life which we're losing in America, and I keep referring to this, but it's a very profound report that came out from the Surgeon General's office earlier this year about the epidemic of loneliness. And then they talk about being open to nature. In Africa, because many people work for the land, or the land is their source of income, they appreciate it, and it opens them up to wonder and to God because of the beauty of the land and all that it provides. Adults nowadays, according to Nielsen, are using media, all sorts of media, computers, phones, TV, streaming, all that stuff, 12 and a half hours a day, more than half of the day spent with media. And again, as I mentioned, okay, let's give people the benefit of the doubt because we have to work on our computers, right? But and we, you can't go to work without computers. Even if you're a farmer, there's so many different types of programs that you have to, to watch the weather and things like that and to... Make sure you're doing things correctly with the land. But even if you spend four to five hours, maybe even six hours at work, tied to a computer, there's still another six and a half hours that people are using media after they're done with work. 
So Houston, I think we have a problem there, right? They're not spending the same amount of time with media, although that is becoming starting to slowly become a concern in some parts. Vatican had a story about that as well today. But they're relating to each other. And they're also relating to nature. Faith begins where there are strong families and communities bonding together, and they are not living behind their phones. In such a setting, faith naturally happens and grows. I think in the U.S., Bishop Dolan from Phoenix says, we have lost a lot of that. I think it's about time to get back to basics, including and starting with, well, obviously God, but within the Christian family of embracing each other. In the house, the domestic church, and beyond. (laughs) 